This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. So more than once, I've gotten emails from listeners wondering just exactly how you end up with a job like mine. A dream job, they say. And I have to laugh. Don't get me wrong. I love what I do. I'm lucky. But I laugh because no job, no matter how cool it might sound, is perfect. That's why you get paid money to do it. There's always a catch. A nagging boss, gossiping co-workers, crummy benefits. Dream jobs don't exist. But let's say that your job was to climb a 14,000 foot mountain. And let's say it's not any old peak. It's the Matterhorn, a peak so perfect in its architecture, so imposing in its presence, that it has come to define what a mountain looks like. You get to stand atop a magical place while millions of tourists mill around below and stare up at you with longing and admiration. That would be a cool job, but a perfect one? I bet by the end of the summer, your knees would probably be killing you, and Switzerland's Alps have some pretty crummy weather, so you'd probably end up freezing your butt off a few times. But what if the Matterhorn was a little bit smaller? Actually, a lot smaller like one one-hundredth of the size. And instead of contending with fierce mountain storms, you could bask in the sunny skies of Southern California. It pays well, and it's got some sweet benefits. First off, your staff lounge is actually a secret lair on top of the mountain. That's right, a secret lair. Second, on your paid breaks, you and your friends get to cut the line to the roller coaster built into the mountain. Third, you can do anything you want because your boss is too busy moonlighting as a talking duck to notice. This kind of job could only exist in a magical place. Like, say, for instance, the Magic Kingdom. It was definitely the best job I have ever had. I mean, it was the kind of thing where you'd get up in the morning and go, oh my gosh, I get to go to work today. Our supervisor was a guy who had been climbing like once or twice, and you know, he'd, his whole career had been playing Donald Duck. He'd been there for like 30 years. They, they just really couldn't supervise this. This is Tom Brox, and the peak Tom spent almost a decade climbing wasn't actually the Matterhorn, but the 174-foot-tall replica Disneyland constructed as a centerpiece of their Southern California theme park. Through the majority of the last four decades, the park has hired climbers, men and women just like you and me, to simply climb. The job even comes with hazard pay. I mean, basically, you're just going and hanging out with your best friends and climbing all day and getting paid for it. We didn't have to deal with any of the Disneyland stuff. You know, we didn't have to deal with people. We were removed from the crowds, which tends to be what really burns people out there. And then um, the management just really didn't know what the heck we were doing half the time. <laughs> we, were, we were pretty out of control. What happens when a bunch of climbers are left unsupervised with the keys to the kingdom? Today, on the Dirtbag Diaries, we bring you Help Wanted. Two decades worth of stories from the fiberglass heights of Orange County. Some jobs are perfect, even if Tinkerbell is out to get you. You had to be able to lead 5'9". Uh, you had to have a certain number of years climbing experience. You, need to, you needed to have uh, multi-pitch climbing experience because we set up uh, hanging belays and that kind of thing. At that point in time where we were going to college, trying to figure out what we were going to do for careers, and, and it was just a great, it was a great job. 
hey, get paid to climb, you know, how can you pass that up, so. This is Steve Van Voris, Tom's close friend. Steve worked as a Matterhorn climber for almost 19 years. He graduated from college, started a career teaching, married, had kids, and kept climbing the Matterhorn on weekends through it all. Well, I, I actually heard about it from Tom. Uh, we were friends uh, from a previous job that we had. We both worked at, uh, it was called California Ski Center. So we would uh, work at the ski shop in the winter and then uh, work full-time at Disneyland climbing the Matterhorn in the summers. So it really did become a, just a, uh, almost like a club of, of uh, people that uh, climbed together there and climbed together on the outside. Steve hired on in 1989. Tom had already been there for three years. Here's Tom again. The mountain is actually uh, steel I-beams. So it's just like a skyscraper, and then it's got a wooden frame over that. Um, then they put a concrete uh, mixture over the top of that. So the Matterhorn is roughly the size of a 10-story building. The roller coaster takes up the first five stories. And the mountain is basically hollow from the fifth floor up. There's kind of a staircase that winds around on the outside, so it's like almost like you're in an upside-down ice cream cone. And from the fifth floor up, it was just climber territory. There was nobody else who would ever go up there. Nobody else had permission to go up there. The typical workday went something like this. Four climbers would show up for work as the park opened. They would enter the Matterhorn, summon the freight elevator, and head to the climber's lair atop the mountain. In 1959, when Disneyland constructed the ride, someone on the design team thought it would be a great idea to build the climbers a hidden room. Obviously, they never met a climber. Once they were up there, they climbed in teams of two and in shifts. From the summit room, they would rappel in and climb for an hour, sometimes logging as many as 42 pitches, and then take an hour-long paid break. They could do homework in the lair, go to ride the teacups, whatever they wanted. There were roughly 45 established routes from 5.4 to 5.12, and most of them could be led. So they would do this all day long and punch out at 5 o'clock. The only way you could get a job was if someone in the program could vouch for you. So all the climbers were friends. They were a bunch of guys in their early 20s. When they weren't working or going to school, they climbed together in Yosemite and Takeets. It was a close group. And the thing is, we were all pretty similar in our you know, desires. One, to become better climbers, and two, we were all pretty serious about our academics. And, you know, we would get a book and read it, all, and we'd all read it and discuss it at our breaks. <laughs> we were all kind of nervous. When Steve hired on, he realized pretty quickly that there was more than climbing going on. Uh, I was new. I, I think I'd only been there for about a month, so I was very much just listening to what everybody said and, and basically doing what everybody told me to do. I, uh, I was climbing with a, a guy named Scott, and Scott was definitely a, um, uh, you know, kind of walked to a different beat. They clocked in, went to the character changing room, donned their lederhosen, red shirts, and knee-high socks, and then set off for the Matterhorn. Set up all the gear and then um, he told me that he wanted to go back down uh, and go back out to the parking lot. Uh, he got in his car, told me to get in the car and uh, and we drove out of out of Disneyland off property. He wanted to go to a bookstore because uh, he, he, he was a huge reader, uh, kind of a philosophy guy. We I literally spent our entire eight-hour shift looking through this bookstore for him to find the next you know great book that he was going to read. I was freaking out the whole time, thinking I'm going to get fired. We drove back about 5 o'clock, went up to the Matterhorn, took all the stuff down, went back to the locker room, changed, clocked out, went home. 
Management had no way of knowing what was going on. I mean, come on. Here are these climbers. They've been given a secret lair. Of course they're going to break some rules. Their direct boss, the guy who moonlighted as the Donald Duck character, was a guy named Jimmy Payton. Jimmy was also one of the head safety liaisons for the park. So I know he was throughout the park dealing with any kind of safety issue that came up. So that's, that's, that took him away from us. Aside from us and Jimmy, nobody else in the park really knew much about climbing. So everybody just assumed that everything up on the Matterhorn was going okay. Jimmy wasn't dumb by any means. He knew what was going on. But he also was in a bit of a predicament when it came to discipline. If Mickey Mouse screws up, it's not hard to find a replacement. Finding a group of 15 climbers would be another story. Although they were delinquent and sometimes out of control, the climbers weren't exactly criminal. He, he, he liked to climb, and, uh, and he liked the fact that he, controlled, that he ran the climbing program, so it was definitely not something that he wanted to lose. As long as there really weren't any safety issues, anybody getting hurt or anything like that, then, then yeah, he pretty much turned a blind eye to, uh, to what was going on. That was part of what made the job so much fun, is that um, we really did have the run of the place. And once we, once we got up into the Matterhorn, uh, it was truly as if no one had any idea what we were doing. You can imagine it didn't take long for things to escalate. You know, if you spend a whole summer working 40 hours a week climbing the same routes, you get pretty darn creative. One, of the really, one, one summer was really fun. We uh, took a pair of old glacier glasses, when we were, like with the leather on the sides, and we filled them full of cotton. We couldn't see at all. And then we proceeded to lead all the routes that you could lead um, blind. These were hard climbs, up to 5.11, where he had to clip bolts and lunge for holds. You had to be kind of cautious, um, because there's a roller coaster underneath you. And there'd be hundreds and hundreds of people watching you every time you were out on the mountain. You, know, you just turn around and wave, and a thousand people would wave back. One, one summer, we just kept going up and taking bigger and bigger lead falls. You know, we yell and get attention to the crowd and hang by one hand and kind of flail around off some of the overhang sections and, and then jump, you know, and see how far you could fall. And we had to actually stop because so many people kept calling 911. You can imagine that for the thousands of tourists waiting in line for the roller coaster, and who know nothing about climbing, it could be somewhat of a traumatic experience watching a climber plunge 30 feet out of sight. It's kind of hard on the children. And Jimmy was starting to field phone calls that workmen were falling off the Matterhorn. Periodically, somebody would come and film us. You know, like Jay Leno came and climbed. It wasn't Jay Leno, but you know, they kind of made it look like Jay Leno climbing it. And there was some filming going on for the Disney Channel. They were doing cool jobs at Disneyland. The vice president of Disneyland was up there every day, and a bunch of producers. At this point, Jimmy had banned them from taking lead falls. And for the shoot, they all had to be on their best behavior. Everything was going smoothly. They were getting the shots they needed. Over the course of the week, Tom had gotten to know the cameraman pretty well. Um, he was having us wear a helmet cam with a video recorder and a fanny pack on our waist. 
I said, you know, I can get up on the overhang, you know, and look around. You can be filming me, and I can take probably a 20, 30-foot whipper off of there. So this is in the early 90s, and helmet cams weren't exactly the sleek, remote units they are now. It was a clunky helmet, with the camera essentially glued to the top, and attached to a 10-pound battery and recorder housed in a fanny pack. The cameraman was into it, and didn't tell anyone else what was about to happen. So I get up there, and I climb up to the overhang, and around a little bit, and I launch off. And, you know, it just feels like a normal fall. The rope catches me fine. Then my head just kind of yanks sideways. I kind of look over and down, and the fanny pack had come unbuckled when I fell. Like, it pinched the Fastex buckle on my waist. And it was hanging by the helmet can, you know, by the cable. And it was right over the roller coaster. Like, the roller coaster was going right underneath. And it kind of made me so I could look right down into the face of the vice president, too, who say, I mean, his eyes were just absolutely huge. <laughs> Did you get in trouble for that one? <laughs> no, everybody was just too, too shaken up. They just, they just like, you know, are you okay? And, and uh, no one even, I don't even think anybody even suspected that it was, that it was deliberate. During the summer, it got so hot um, at home, on the Matterhorn, but even inside the Matterhorn, you know, it would be close to 95 degrees and inside there, and it would just be so hot. And uh, we would climb in teams of two. So uh, if if my partner and I were climbing on the outside, then the other two guys would be inside taking a break, and then we would swap. In the summer sun, climbing on the snow-colored fiberglass could leave your eyes aching. It could get so bright. And the lights in the climber's lair could be turned off. So the guys that were on break would spend their entire hour break figuring out how to uh, how to get you when you came back in because they knew that you were helpless. If you were outside climbing in that bright sun, the, when you walked inside the Matterhorn, there was literally a good minute where you're, you couldn't see a thing if, uh, if the lights were shut off because it was so dark. And so they would set up water traps and they'd hide in, in the rafters and you'd walk in and just you know get doused with an entire five-gallon uh, arrowhead jug, and and uh, it, it, they turned into some some really big, sometimes hour long uh, water fights where we would you know even miss a set. The guys that were supposed to be climbing wouldn't even go out. More than once, the emergency fire hoses got turned on. So if you've been to Disneyland, you probably know that every night the park puts on a fireworks show for its guests. And every night, the display begins as Tinkerbell, or a woman dressed like Tinkerbell, zips lines off the top of the Matterhorn. So the climber's lair wasn't entirely their domain. So in the evening, um, they would, she would go up there with her crew. They would hook her up uh, to this cable with a, a full-body harness and a trolley system. And then to, right as the fireworks show was starting, um, they, would, they would spotlight the top of the Matterhorn, and then she would fly down this cable... Um, and, and sort of launch the fireworks show. So they would come in in the evening after we were long gone, but then the, the remnants of our water fights, just the humid, dripping, swampy you know, atmosphere inside the Matterhorn would still be there. And so they'd come in and have to work in that, and they would leave just these, these, these incredibly vicious, mean you know, uh, uh, voicemails and, 
and phone messages about how we were doing it again and somebody needed to stop us. <laughs> so Tinkerbell was out to get you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Tinkerbell called management. Management contacted Jimmy. They needed to be stopped. But the thing is that Jimmy, who had access to the climbers' room, had never actually caught anyone in the act. Then he would come up from time to time. So that was that was always the uh, that was always the the one thing in the back of your mind. Somewhere along the line, one of the climbers discovered that they had control of the large freight elevator that linked them to the ground. If you if you lifted up the door. Uh, then the elevator wouldn't go anywhere, even if somebody called it from down below. They would hit the call button down on the bottom floor, and then we'd hear a, an alarm go off, and so we would know that somebody was down there. We'd run in really quick, shut the door so the elevator would go down, and then you know we'd have about, I don't know, a minute or a minute and a half. We could clean up whatever it is that we were doing uh, so that by the time anybody got up there, there wasn't much evidence left of stuff that was going on. So as long as we could control that, then then you know, we could control who came up and, and who didn't. So. Talking with them, you get the feeling that Steve, Tom, and their fellow climbers were like the cool kids in high school, the kids who the rules didn't apply to. They drove some people nuts, Tinkerbell in particular, but for the most part, the characters and management seemed to like them. For the climbers, life was pretty much perfect in the Magic Kingdom. The only thing that could ruin a day at Disneyland was rain. When it rained, that was always an issue because nobody wanted to get sent home. If your supervisor was able to get a hold of you and tell you to go home, then you had no choice and you had to go because they would stop paying you at that, at, as, at that point. Or worse yet, you might have to play a regular character, something that both Steve and Tom did from time to time to earn a little extra money. A man of their height could play Tigger, Captain Hook, or Goofy. It was a job neither of them enjoyed. You know, you get mobbed. It's amazing how many people descend on you. You know, and a kid grabs your head from behind and they mess up your neck for weeks. Yeah, Mickey Mouse could only go out for about five minutes because then the crowds would get too big and dangerous. Ironically, the greatest numbers of worker comp claims at Disneyland come from people playing characters, much more so than from the climbers. Uh, and you're in the midst of you know, every guest at Disneyland and not everybody that goes to Disneyland is, is, you know, polite and respectful to the characters. The kids, um, beat on them. If you, if you were a character that had a tail, um, not a, not a set went by that you, that you didn't go out there and get your tail yanked on, uh, jumped on, swung from, there was a, a, a support brace that kind of went along the small of your back and that's what the tail was attached to. So if anybody grabbed it, ganked on it, or jumped on it, it was a, an immediate jab right into your back. If your supervisor got a hold of you on a rainy day, it either meant you were done working or headed to suit up as Goofy. It was like a game of tag. So I can remember one day it was just pouring rain, and there was no way we were going to climb. And we knew we were going to get sent home, and so we decided that we were going to completely stay away from the mountain. They donned Disney-issued rain gear, the phone rang, they didn't answer. The Magic Kingdom and all the back lots are actually quite large. It would take 20 or 30 minutes to cross them on foot. So 
So back then, everyone had a bicycle to get from one place to the other. The bikes were rarely locked up, so the climbers liberated four bikes and headed out to dodge their supervisor. We, uh, we got these suits on so that we wouldn't get it too wet, and we grabbed these bikes, and, and we literally spent probably four hours just riding around the back lots of Disneyland. They found this lot behind the Pirates of the Caribbean that had flooded. And spent most of the, that time riding through that lake trying to see who could go the farthest. And after that got old, they actually went into the Pirates of the Caribbean. It, it was at a time when the Pirates was down for rehab, and we found that somebody had left a, a door unlocked. Um, and so we got inside um, the backstage area of the Pirates of the Caribbean, got ourselves down into the ride area, and uh, cruised around, walked around in the in the uh, the channel where the boats normally go. There was we were walking around with the pirates, taking pictures with the pirates. When rides are down for rehab like that, they're completely off limits. Nobody's supposed to be in there. So, you know, but at the same time, there was always that, that possibility that a construction guy or some supervisor might be just walking through, just checking things out. Then they got word from another character that their supervisor was after them. Her name was Robin. And uh, she was really nice. We really liked her. We, we really felt bad after this whole day because we kind of did take advantage of the situation. Um, she actually got a van uh, and started driving around the back lot trying to find us because she knew we weren't, up, we weren't in the mountain. Everywhere we went, we were a step ahead of her. And then somebody had the idea that we should go have lunch. I can't remember who it was. And uh, so we decided to cruise back over to the front side of the park where we normally eat. Okay. Okay. There's a, a, a tunnel that goes underneath the train track in the back lot. And we were coming around this corner. And we went down the, the tunnel, and we came up the other side. And as we were going up the other side, her van came down the other direction. And you could kind of just see, uh, to this day, I, I still laugh when I think about it. It was the funniest thing. But you could just see her face and just the, the, the shock in her face. And, and her finger kind of come out the window and point. And she goes, there they are, as we drive off around the corner. And she, you could tell she was pissed. She let us have it. And uh, we definitely paid for that one. We both, we all got uh, reprimanded. Uh, one of the guys, I think, got suspended for a couple of days. And, yeah, it was a pretty big deal. But, you know, to this day, when I think about it, it it's, it's all smiles because it was so much fun. Now, it's kind of funny because I'm sitting here listening to you talk. And you're talking about, like, secret lairs and top of mountains and tunnels and bikes and you know the pirates of the caribbean and you know here here disneyland is this sort of magic kingdom for kids and was it kind of like in its own weird way your guys' own little magic kingdom i mean i know that sounds strange but it just sounds like it was a playground for you guys oh uh, it, it was it was a complete and total perfect playground for the last 18 years you know i've been at least part-time you know i've i've been there and there's if if, if it was not an amazing amount of fun. There's no way I would have stuck it out that long. Um, a lot of the friends that I still have um, are friends that I met there. My wife, um, I met there. Yeah, it really was a, a family within that department. Uh, it was definitely uh, one of the best jobs we have. Tom left in 1993 to pursue a Ph.D. in geography. He teaches at Pierce County Community College in Tacoma, Washington. Steve still lives in Southern California, where he teaches middle school. They're still good friends. 
I know half of you are already on Disney's website looking for job openings, but I've got bad news for you. In 2006, Disneyland ended the climbing program due to insurance and budget constraints. Steve was there until the end. Music today by Blockhead, the Gene Drayton Unit, the Mexican Institute of Sound, and the Pinker Tones. A big thanks to Iota Promenet for providing use of independent music for podcasters. Questions or comments? Check out our newly revised site, www.dirtbagdiaries.com, and send us an email. So, I heard that a couple days ago they actually closed I-70 due to snow. Ski season's almost here, so if you need some winter clothes, go check out Patagonia's new line at www.patagonia.com. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Mm-hmm.